Exodus chapter 3. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of holy ground. As we think about this passage of Scripture, we sometimes have a little problem in churches like ours. We read a passage like this, and I announce that I'm going to preach on Moses and the burning bush, and if we aren't careful, we have the tendency to think, well, that's 10,000 miles away from us, and that's 4,000 years ago. What in the world does that have to do with me here this morning in Kentucky? Well, if you think in those terms, geographically and historically, when you read your Bible, then you're going to miss a lot of things that God has for us. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, it says, Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples or examples. They are written for our admonition. In other words, the things that happened to Moses and the burning bush way back then is for our example today. And the Lord says that this message this morning is for all of us. It's for you, it's for me, it's for every one of us. And sometimes when we think about these stories in the Bible, this is a passage that we call a biblical classic. Stories like Noah and the ark and Daniel and the lion's den and the Three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace and David killing Goliath and the, the walls of Jericho falling down and the parting of the Red Sea. And we tend to think sometimes, well, I heard that in kindergarten and I heard that when I was in the primary department and we heard it again and again in the teen department. And, and then as we've gotten older, we've heard it over and over in sermons and in Sunday school lessons. And if we aren't careful, we kind of think, well, I've heard all of that. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and we get kind of, kind of put our mind in neutral, and we forget that God has something important for us today, and we have to be careful that it doesn't just become old hat to us. We've heard it, we know it, but we have to remember God has written this for our example, it's for us today, it's for now, it's for you, it's for me. And so it says here in this passage that Moses, in verse 1, is keeping the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and he's out on the backside of the desert. When he was in Egypt, he was somebody. But when he got back to the backside of the desert, now he becomes an absolute nobody. A little bit later on, Moses is going to find out how that God can take nobody and really make him into somebody again. And in this particular case, the Bible says that he's in the backside of the desert. And I don't know, probably most of us have never been in the backside of the desert, but some of us have been out in the country. And that's kind of similar to that. But there's a very interesting trait, and that is it can be so still that you can hear a pin drop. You ever been somewhere like that? It was just so quiet. I know some of you are saying it's never like that around our house. <clears throat> but you can get in a place like that, and that's where Moses was. There was no trains coming through there making noises. There were no flying, low-flying airplanes that he could hear roaring. There were no tractor-trailer trucks making their noise on the concrete seams as they, as they drove down the road. There were no children playing on the playground. There was nobody with their television on there. There's no cell, cell phones ringing. I hope yours doesn't ring while I'm preaching this morning. And 
There was none of all those things that we're accustomed to. The busyness and all the things that occupy our life and distract us. It was so quiet. Moses, on the backside of the desert, he could hear a pin drop. And the Bible says that in that setting, there on that backside of the desert, he came to the mountain of God. I don't know how that mountain got its name, except that it was a part of the Mount Sinai chain. There were seven mountains there, and one of those mountains was where God came down and met with Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments. And so we have two two characteristics that are given to us here in this very first verse. First of all, we're out on the backside of the desert. And then secondly, we're coming to a place that's identified as the mountain of God. Now, I want you to think for a moment, all of us, I think most of us got up this morning and we went through the process, the routine of a shower and shaving and dressing and the ladies fixing their hair and putting their makeup on and getting everything all ready and then had some breakfast and and all the things that we go through and then we left to come to church, we left behind the television and we left the phones and, well, some of you left the phones and you left the computers and the iPads and And all of those things, we set them aside to come to the house of God. And here's Moses, he's at the mountain of God. And we've come this morning to a place that's identified as the place of God. And we've quieted down. And we're listening. We've had the songs. We've we've prayed together. We've had wonderful special music. And we've settled down and now we're ready for verse number 2. And he says in verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. Now, if you really, really want to get something out of the Bible, you've got to put yourself in the place of the character that you're reading about in the Bible. If you're going to study Daniel in the lion's den, you get in the lion's den and you take a look at those lions as they're there with the saliva running down off of their chin and their teeth are showing and and their claws, they have been up all night long filing and sharpening them and waiting and, and you're the next meal for them. Get in there and think about what Daniel must have felt when those lions came in there. Get in the fiery furnace with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, and feel the, the heat of the fire as it's heated up seven times more than it ever was before. And they believed that God was going to keep them safe in there. And they're about to find out whether God's going to do it or not. And they hear the king, he looks in and he says, Didn't we throw three men in there? Bound. And in the midst of the fire. And and I'm sure those men said, Yes, king, we did, we did. And the king says, Lo, I see four men loose, walking about. And the fourth is like unto the Son of God. Now this morning as we think about this story of the burning bush, I want you to get into the story with me a little bit. You be Moses. You've been through a whole lot in your life. You've been down in Egypt now for 40 years. And when you were in Egypt, when you got up in the morning, four or five valets come and they help you put your sandals on and they help you put on your robe and and they help you get your hair fixed just right and, and, and make sure that everything's in order. And then you go through a door and there's guards that are standing there. And, and they've got steel rods with long spikes on the end of them. And, 
and they escort you to a dining area and four or five waitresses come and they offer you anything you want to eat. And because you're second in command to the Pharaoh in the largest nation of the world and, and you're going to be the number one man when the Pharaoh dies and you'll be the Pharaoh of Egypt and you're going to be the one that's on top of it all. You step out the door and there's a chariot waiting for you, which is probably made out of solid gold or maybe solid silver. There are guards there. In front of them, in front of that chariot, there's six beautiful Arabian stallions that are going to pull it. And they're going to put you in that chariot and the soldiers are going to run alongside of that chariot. They'll have their bows and their arrows. They're ready to protect you. And the people on the sidewalks along the way will bow down to you and and those soldiers will say, bow the knee, bow the knee. You've had all this royalty. And now, you're there on the backside of the desert. And you've become a nobody. And you're lonely. Think about the fact that he could have been out there already for a month or two. He hadn't seen Jochebed or Miriam. He hadn't seen Amron or Aaron or Zipporah or Gershon. He hadn't seen Eliezer. He's all alone. And it's quiet. And you put yourself in that place for just a moment where Moses was. And suddenly, an angel shows up in a burning bush that's blazing about 10,000 kilowatts. Now, if you'll be Moses, just think for just a moment. What if we're Moses? I'm Moses this morning. And all of a sudden, over here on the side appears this big, huge angel glowing at about 50,000 kilowatts. And, and all of a sudden you see that angel there and it just kind of grips you. And, and, and I don't know what you would do, but I think the first thing I'd do is I'd quit talking. <laughs> and the second thing I'd do, I'd quit breathing. <laughs> and you probably would too if you saw a giant angel like that. It would just kind of freeze us, paralyze us. And I'm sure it did that to Moses. Every time you see angels appear in the Bible... You hear them say something like this. They'll say, fear not, or be not afraid. Don't be afraid of me. So here's Moses. He's confronted by the angel. Now, this is what we call a theophany in the Bible. There are theophanies and there are Christophanies. In the fiery furnace with the three, three Hebrew children, it was a Christophany. When the king looked in and he said, hey, fellas, didn't we throw three men in the fiery furnace? And the fourth is likened to the Son of God. That was Jesus in there. That's a Christophany. Here at the burning bush, it is a theophany. Because here, he says, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So this is Almighty God himself in an angelic form. And so we have this angel showing up here. It's God himself in an angelic form. And he's a flame of fire in the midst of this bush that is burning. And Moses looks at the bush and, and he notices that the bush burns and it 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 doesn't burn up. And that's a wonderful thought when you think about that. He's there in the fire and it represents the presence of God and it burns and it doesn't, it doesn't burn up. And the Lord has something for us from that burning bush this morning. I believe God wants us to understand that if we catch on fire for God and burn, we won't burn up. Amen? You won't burn up when you catch on fire for God. Sometimes people will come and they'll say, well, 
Do you know so-and-so? Boy, they've really caught on fire for God. We understand what they mean when they say that. We mean they got fired up. They got inspired. They got revived. And Moses suddenly gets stirred up, and he gets fired up. And the second thing I found out is that every time I really get stirred up and get on fire for God, it doesn't burn up my energy. It doesn't burn, my, burn up my energy. I can come to the pulpit and preach. I could sometimes, if I'm away and preaching in a revival meeting or something, I might preach six or seven times in, in that week's time, and, and, and it, it, I find out it doesn't wear me out. In fact, it oftentimes builds up my energy. I've had other times when I've come to the pulpit when I was sick and I didn't feel very good. And I found once I started preaching, I forgot all about being sick. And God just gives you energy. I remember one time when I was in college, I was pastoring the church in Chatsworth, Georgia. And there were a number of workers from the college that worked with me. And it was Christmas time and all of the college students had gone home for Christmas and I was working by myself. <laughs> And I got up one Sunday morning, and I was sick as a dog. I had the flu, and I didn't know what to do. I called Dr. Robertson. He was my pastor, and, and uh, I told Doc, I said I was sick, and, and I thought maybe he'd tell me, well, let me get somebody on staff or somebody here to go down and fill in for you. But, you know, he said, just do the best you can, son. Just do the best you can. <laughs> And I lived an hour away from the church. I drove an hour to church. Then I drove a bus route. Then I taught Sunday school. Then I preached. Then I drove a bus route, taking people home. And then I just stayed there all afternoon. I, we had a little space heater on the side of the auditorium that heated it. And I pulled a, a, one of the benches around there. And I had a pillow and a blanket. And I slept the afternoon. And in the evening, I got up. And I ran a bus route again. We had then, back then, training union. It was kind of like Sunday school on Sunday night. So I taught training union. Then I preached Sunday night. Then I drove a bus route. Then I drove an hour back home. When I got home, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm sick. <laughs> but you know what? God has a way of giving us energy. When you get on fire for the Lord, you don't burn up your energy. And then I found something else out. When I get on fire for God... It doesn't burn up my time. It doesn't burn up my time. If I'll put God first, and if I'll give God the first day of the week, if I'll take time to pray, I found out that I have a lot more time for my stuff when I take time for God's stuff. If I ignore that, if I steal God's time, if I don't take time to read my Bible and take time for my praying, and I don't take time for Sunday school and church and prayer meeting, you know what I find out? I can't get all my stuff done. But I found out that I've got plenty of time when I give my time to the Lord and when I'm on fire for Him. And then also I found this out. I found something else. When I get on fire for God, it doesn't burn up my money. It doesn't burn up my money. You see, God did not come to take from us. God came to give to us. And God wants to give to us. Money will come from all kinds of different places if we'll do what the Lord tells us to do with our money, if we'll honor Him and put Him first in our lives. So in verses 1 and 2, we've left our home, we've left our place of living, we've come to the mountain of God, and we're on the backside of the desert, and the angel of the Lord shows up, which was God Himself. And could I tell you, He's here today. 
He's promised us where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And there, as we are gathered together, he's here today. I hope you feel the Lord's presence when you're in church. If you haven't, you haven't figured it out yet. But if you come and if you just see the people and you fellowship and you sing the songs and you hear the music and you listen to the sermon and you say, oh yeah, we did that last Sunday and we'll do that next Sunday again and it just sort of becomes old hat, shame on you and shame on me if we let that happen to us. So here we come to verse number two and the angel of the Lord appeared. And then it says, He appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And then look what happens in verse number three. And Moses said, I will now turn aside. Here's the bush. It's It's burning, but it's not being consumed. And here's Moses taking care of a bunch of old stinky sheep. And he's looking at this bush and it's burning. And, and the Bible doesn't tell us how many sheep he had. It, it just says there was a flock of them. And all of a sudden, this angel pops up and appears to him. And now, I want you to see a difference here because here he is taking care of the sheep. That's the, that's the secular part of this story. That's his job. He's getting paid to do that, to take care of the sheep. Jethro, his father-in-law, is giving him some kind of remuneration. Maybe it's the, it's the, the room and board, the housing for his family, uh, some money besides that. I don't know what all he was given to him, but, but he's taking care of them. He's being paid. That's his job. And by the way, I wouldn't have an ounce of respect for Moses if he didn't take good care of those sheep. That was his responsibility. And we ought to take our responsibilities and do them well because... Moses knew that he was responsible and that there may be a lion behind the rock or behind the bushes waiting for Moses to goof off a little bit and and he would come running out and do as Amos says, grab one of those little lambs and there would just be two little legs left and a piece of an ear. And a sheep's not worth very much when he's just two little legs and a piece of an ear left. By the way, that little lamb pictures the Christian who gets out of the will of God and gets chewed up by the devil and ends up being worthless just like two little legs and a piece of an ear. And I think sometimes we have a lot of two little legs and a piece of an ear Christians in our churches today that have been chewed up and become victims of the devil. But that's all the secular. He's taking care of his job. He's taking care of the sheep. I understand that. We have to take care of our families. We have to go to work. We have to go to the factory, or we have to go to the office and support our family, but suddenly God comes on the scene. And suddenly it goes from the secular of taking care of the work and the family and all this, and now it becomes spiritual. God's there, and God's on the scene. And now we have a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. And Moses is standing there, and the Bible says that Moses now says, I'm going to turn aside. He turns aside. He turns from the secular and he turns aside to listen to God and hear what God has to say for him, to him. I'm going to see why this bush is burning and why it's not burned up. 
I'm going to leave the secular responsibility and I'm going to get to church and I'm going to give God the right place in my life. And the Bible says this, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, then God spoke. I want to say to you this morning that God will never speak to you and me and we'll never know what the will of God is for our life We'll never find contentment and happiness and peace and joy if we don't turn aside, if we don't make a decision not based on what has to happen at work, not what has to happen in the secular world, but turn aside from that and pay attention to God and listen to what God has to say to me. Not I've got to take care of all these responsibilities, but... That's kind of set aside. God, you're most important. I want to hear from you. I want to listen to you. Moses turned aside. He wanted to see why that bush didn't burn up. And when he turned aside, God spoke. What did God say? Well, when I think about God speaking in the Bible, I think about creation. God spoke. And when God spoke, all of a sudden, billions of galaxies and billions of stars came into existence, the powerful Word of God. And now He's getting ready to speak again, and I can just think, oh boy, what's God going to say? I wonder how He's going to say it. Did He say, Moses? Or did He just say, Moses? Moses. Or did he just speak in a normal voice and say, Moses, Moses? Well, I don't know, but you'll never come to a question like that in the Bible, but what the Bible doesn't, if you'll search it out, have an answer for you. There's an answer. There's no unanswered questions. Anytime you have a question or a thought or a situation, if you'll search, there's something in the Bible that will cover that. God covers every base. He dots every I and he crosses every T. And he has an answer for everything. And as you scan through the Bible to find an answer for this, I thought about the story of Elijah sitting beside the juniper tree. And there he was feeling sorry for himself and Jezebel was trying to kill him. And suddenly the Bible says there was a huge earthquake. And the mountains shook and the rocks rolled down into the valley and the place trembled and shook. And then it very casually says... God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a fire. And the fire rolled in and the smoke billowed up in the sky and the soot scattered out for miles all around. And, and then it says, and God wasn't in the fire. And then a tornado or a whirlwind came through and just blew everything away. And, and it says, God wasn't in that either. And then it says, and God spoke in a still, small Let's go back to verse 1 again for a minute. Here we are on the backside of the desert. It's so quiet you can hear a pin drop. Why would God holler? Why would he beat a bunch of drums and blow a bunch of trumpets? When God whispers something to you and to me, everybody else around us isn't going to know it. I've been sitting beside Vicky in a church service, maybe here when we had a guest speaker, maybe in a special event somewhere that I've gone to and God speaks to me and the invitation's given and the preacher says, if God spoke to you, 
why don't you come to the altar and talk to the Lord about it? And I get out and come down the aisle and Vicki didn't hear it. And there have been times when it's her going to the altar and I didn't hear it. God spoke to me or God spoke to her and standing right beside each other, we didn't hear it. You're the only one that's going to know. But you know what? The book of Hebrews says there's a lot of people that are dull of hearing. And God can't speak to them. He can speak, but they don't hear. And they don't even know He's talking. Their spiritual level is not high enough, and God's not able to help them. They're deaf, and that's dangerous. I believe God said, Moses. And probably Moses said, what was that? And he looked around. He thought, did one of you sheep learn how to speak? And then the voice came again, Moses. You know, if you go through the Bible, you'll find that happen over and over again. God said, Abraham, Abraham. Here he says, Moses, Moses. Samuel, Samuel. Saul, Saul. Eli, Eli. Martha, Martha. John says, verily, verily. Why is it he always says it twice? I think it's because we're most of the time so busy doing other things, we don't recognize him the first time. He says, Tim, and I say, huh, huh, what was that, you know? And then he says, Tim, you know why? He wants to make sure I'm listening. And he wants to make sure I know he's not talking to Bill or Sam or Sue or Sally or George. He wants me to know he's talking to me, and he wants me to understand that it is personal. And so in verse 4, he says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here am I. You may not hear an audible voice, but God will speak to your heart. And when he speaks, by analogy, what God wants you and me to do when he speaks to us, he wants us, in a sense, to take a piece of paper, an eight and a half by 11 piece of blank paper, and on the bottom, just sign your name on the bottom of that paper, and then hand it to the Lord. What's he going to put on it? I have no idea. Where? Don't know. When? I don't know. Any salary? I don't know. How much? I don't have any idea. Any retirement plan in that? I don't know. Any insurance? Do I get a vacation? Do I have personal days? I don't know. He doesn't tell us anything but just Tim, Tim. And I say, yes, sir. Whatever he wants. That means, Lord, I don't know what you're getting ready to tell me, but yes. Yes. And when you say yes, then God will tell you. He said, Abraham, I want you to pack up and leave in Genesis chapter 12. I want you to go to a place I'll show you, and I'll show you as you go. Where am I going? I'm not going to tell you. And Abraham packed up, and Abraham left. And his name became great, and he's the leader of three of the great religions of the world. Best known name in history. Why? Because he obeyed God. He obeyed God. Now, the same thing is true here. And the Lord says the same thing to you and to me. He says, Tim, I want you to sign the paper, and I want you to hand it to me, and I want you to say, yes, Lord. Anybody here ever come to that place in your life? When you've just said, yes, Lord. 
where you're willing to let God be God? Or are we trying to be God 50% of the time or 60% or 70% of the time and let him be God on Sunday morning? You see, this is what it's all about. When I get to the place where I'm supposed to be and I'm willing to do whatever God wants me to be, all of a sudden there'll be a great joy in my life. When we talk about this thing of tithing, and this month we've been talking about stewardship. Last Sunday we talked about it, giving our tithe and our offerings to God. We ought to be so excited to get involved in God's work and get involved in what He wants me to do. I don't know all that He wants me to do, but I'm willing to do whatever He shows me He's leading me to do. And when God tells you what to do, you take a chance on doing what God wants and on God doing something through you, and God will do it. And we ought to be excited about seeing what God's going to do. What's he want to do with my life? What's he going to tell me to do? Where's he going to tell me to go? And so that's what this is all about. God says, Moses, Moses. And Moses says, here am I. Now we come to verse number five. And God says to him, he says, draw not nigh hither. When you first read that, you may think, boy, I can't wait to hear what God's going to tell him. I think God maybe is going to tell Moses, I've got this big church down here somewhere. It's got about 4,000 people every Sunday, and, and I need a pastor for that big church. Or maybe he's going to say, I've got this mission station over in this country, and they've got hundreds of people coming, and they've got 25 outlets, and I need a leader, leader for that mission organization. Or maybe he says, I've got this big college with 25,000 students, and I need a president for my college. For a guy that's willing to sign a blank check like Moses was, God must have had something big for him to do. And God says, okay, Moses, you ready? Moses says, okay. What is it, God? And God says, sit down, take off your shoes. Isn't that amazing? What a big request God had for Moses. Lord, what do you want me to do? Sit down and take off your shoes. Is that it, God? That's it. Moses said, well, I said I would, so he sat down and took off his shoes. And I believe God said, oh boy, I found my man now. He said, Moses, I've got two and a half million Jewish people down in Egypt, and they're suffering, and they're begging, and they're crying out to me. Moses, I'm so heartbroken about my people. I want you to go down there, and I want you to bring my people out and bring them to the promised land. But I wasn't going to choose anybody, Moses, who wasn't willing to sit down and take off his shoes. You see, sometimes we see a piece of paper in the floor and, or a piece of paper in the songbook rack and we think, where's that janitor? We pay them the money to clean all that up. Not if you've heard this. Or you walk across the parking lot and you see a McDonald's wrapper and you say, I wish they'd clean the trash up around here. No. If you've heard from the Lord, you go up and pick, go over and pick that wrapper up yourself. It's the little bitty things like that. You see, the guy that's going to be a great Moses and the guy that's going to be a great Abraham, the Bible says he that is faithful in a few things, the little bitty nothing things, I'll make him ruler over many cities. That's what the Bible's teaching us. And so it's a matter of saying, Lord, here am I. And the Lord says, okay, take off your shoes because the place where you're standing, Moses, is holy ground. Now, here's my sermon this morning. If you go to Abraham, Abraham, 
Abraham's getting ready to stick a knife into his son and sacrifice him as an offering to the Lord. And in spite of the fact that God had promised that he would make his seed as the mul- multiplied as the sands of the, of, the, of the sea and the stars of the sky, and yet the Lord's asking him to kill the one boy who could make all of that possible. And he's going to go ahead with it. He raises that knife and all of a sudden the Lord comes down and he says, Hold it. I see that you really mean it. There's a ram caught over there in the thicket. Go get the ram. And I want you to see this morning that that was holy ground. And when the Lord spoke to Jacob and he saw him going up and down the ladder and the angels there and God came on the scene and when God came on the scene it was holy ground. And when the Lord said to Samuel, 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 that night that little boy ran to Eli and he said to Eli, here am I. He was about signing a paper. He was saying, here am I, whatever you want me to do. And the Lord selected that little boy to become the greatest prophet of all times. Why? Because that was holy ground. And then there was Paul, the apostle Paul. Used to be called Saul of Tarshish. And the Lord spoke and he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And when Jesus came down and spoke to Saul that day, that meant that all of Asia Minor was going to get the gospel and hear about God and turn to God. And then on over to Macedonia and to Eastern Europe and then to Western Europe and over into England and then across to Canada and down to America, all because Paul obeyed. Because he did what God told him to do. Then there was Eli, Eli. You talk about holy ground. And when Jesus hung on the cross to pay for my sins and your sins and the sins of the whole world, that was holy ground. But I want to point out to you something this morning, that none of those places were any more holy than this place right here, right now this morning, for the same reason, because God is here. I hope you feel Him. I hope you hear Him. I hope you'll obey him. If he says to you this morning, look, you're not saved. You're going to lose your soul. You're going to die and go to hell for all of eternity and burn forever and ever. I hope you'll say, Lord, please save me. Come into my heart and life. The Lord says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Lord says, I'll take care of that for you. That may be what the Lord's saying to someone here today. He may be speaking to someone who's saved, but you haven't been baptized or joined the church. And he's saying, I want you to come and make arrangements to get baptized or come and join the church. You may say, well, God's speaking to me about tithing. And God's saying to you, why don't you start doing what you're supposed to do? Why don't you obey God so that I can open the windows of heaven and pour out my blessings on you? I want to help you. I want to make you happy. Why don't you cooperate with me? I hope you'll hear him this morning because this is holy ground. And God has come to help us. Why do we resist like Saul of Tarsus did at first? The Bible says, why do we kick against the pricks or the goads that were used to prod the oxen? God's prodding us and convicting us and prompting us. Why do we resist against it? Why do we say, well, I've got my own, my own ideas about what I want to do. And God says, no, 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 that's not it. Here's the Lord, and he's speaking to you this morning. And you know what he wants you to do. And some of you have had times in the past when God's spoken to you about things that he wanted you to do. And you, 
didn't listen or didn't hear or didn't obey. Today, God wants us to come to that place where we say, Lord, here am I. Here's my blank piece of paper, whatever you want to put on it. I don't care about the retirement. I don't care about the salary. I don't care about whatever. It's your, my life is your, whatever you want. I'll do whatever God wants me to do. Are you willing to say with Moses, here am I? Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Lord, what an amazing story when we really take time to stop and think about it. And what an example for us today to come to that point in our life, whatever it is that we're struggling with, where we say, yes, Lord, I'll do it. Maybe some situations where we have to say, yes, Lord, I won't do it. It's not, this is something you don't want me to do, and I won't do it. Whatever God's speaking to us about, Lord, help us to say, yes, Lord. Unreservedly, your will. May we give our lives to you. Help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.